Mark chapter 14. Once again, glad you were with us. And we now, last week we looked at the institution of the Lord's Supper. Who can remember the three directions that we look or that we can look when we think about the Lord's Supper? We can look up. That's an act of faith. Um, having, expressing our, our real faith in Jesus and what he did for us. We can look back and how he saved us. And we can look forward because he says, I won't drink of it again until I come again. So tonight, we're going to look at uh, Jesus' love for stumblers and sellouts. That's all of us, isn't it? <laughs> Jesus' love for stumblers and sellouts. Somebody uh, read verses 26 through 31 for me in whatever translation that you have. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will fall away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, all will go ahead of you to Galilee. I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, Even if everyone falls away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, Today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he kept insisting, If I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. That's right. And the, uh, the first verse, verse 26, said, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. It's okay. <laughs> I actually uh, read that last week. So y'all should have listened last week, you would have heard that. <laughs> that is true. You did read that last week. I, I forgot to mention that. So let's take a look at the setting real quick. Let's... Uh, let me make a few notes here on something. And, okay. So what's the setting? Well, the setting is this occurs right after the Passover, what we would call. Now, of course, we need to, I guess we ought to be more specific. We ought to call it the Last Supper because some people think that what Jesus and the disciples had was not an actual Passover meal. So... Just leaving that as an, as an option, we could, we could at least say that they had just had the Last Supper, right? Now, what's interesting is if you, if you make a note of what else is happening here, it would be kind of cool for you sometime to do a little study on, and it's easy enough to find. You could Google, like, uh, a timeline of what happens. A lot of what Jesus says in, John, in the book of John happens as they're walking to the Mount of Olives. In fact, just take a, a quick glance over at John chapter... Uh, 14. So in John chapter 14, if you look at it, right before that, in chapter 13, verse 36, it's Jesus foretelling Peter's denial. So... 
when is that happening? That's happening the same time as what Mark chapter 14 is 26 is happening, right? Which is on the walk to the Mount of Olives. And then when you look at chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Chapter 15, I am the true vine. Verse 16, chapter 16, the work of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 17, the high priestly prayer. That is all Jesus talking, just about. There's a few things the disciples say, but it's a lot. If, if you have a red letter edition, there's a lot of red there, right? Mine does, is not red, but my point is, all of that is happening either on the way or once they get to the Mount of Olives. Now, it's only about a 20-minute walk, maybe 30 minutes from where Jesus and the disciples were probably to the Mount of Olives, depending on where they went on the Mount of Olives. But um, anyway, what, what, what is happening here, it says they were eating. I'm sorry. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So everything that happens after this is either on the way or it's on the Mount of Olives. Um, so this is right after the Last Supper and right before Jesus is betrayed, which begins down in verse 43. Now, um, it says they're singing as they go. It's not told here exactly what they're singing, but uh, observant Jews of the, of the time, they would, they would sing a particular set of psalms. And if you're a note taker, the psalms that they would sing during and after Passover were Psalm 113 to 118. And, uh, you know, that's not going to change your life or anything, but that's just kind of something that's neat to know. Incidentally, why do, why do humans sing? We say that birds sing, but they're really just talking to each other. Why do humans sing? What are some reasons that you can come up with? Some of them sound good. <laughs> Joy. We don't, it doesn't say they sang well. It just says they sang. Well, I know, but you asked what were some of the reasons why some people can sing to them. Okay, so some people sound nice. Uh, you sing when you're happy. Our, now, Miss Ann brings up a good point. You sing when you're happy, but there's also a genre of songs that we sing when we're sad called... <laughs> country. <laughs> That's not what I was thinking, even though certainly true. I was thinking the blues, the blues, singing the blues. Uh, there is a lot of country songs that fit into that category. There's rock songs too. But the point is, singing expresses emotion. There's songs that express anger, right? Um, Nine Inch Nails. Eminem, Rage Against the Machine. Even it's even in their name, Rage Against the Machine. Okay. Yeah, right. Well, maybe some of them. Anyway, we sing uh, for a lot of reasons. But did you know that one reason we sing is because we're made in God's image? God is a singer. Zephaniah three seventeen says of God, He God will exult over you with a loud singing. That's Zephaniah three seventeen. And, of course, we see Jesus here singing. Singing is also a natural response of a grateful heart. If you're grateful, it's a lot easier to sing. It's interesting that the first thing Miss Ann said was when you're happy. And one of the things that brings happiness, at least joy, is gratitude. Um, Psalm 100 says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. And there's your... There's your, uh, 
That's, that's for you, man. Make a joyful noise. <laughs> Only because of what you said earlier. Yeah. Make a joyful noise to, to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know the Lord. He is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We, I still have this memorized from the King James from when I was a kid. It's, it's hard not to say it. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Well, the one of the reasons is the King James Version made it into a song that I learned as a kid. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. And here's the, last, here's the capstone of that psalm. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. So singing is, a, you know, by the way, this is one of the reasons I know not everybody can sing and and we've, uh, we've developed a, a generation of men who, and women who say, well, if I don't sound good, I, I'm not going to sing. That's what we just read, isn't it? Um, I would just encourage you, if that's you, first recognize who you're singing to. You're not singing for me or for Miss Janice or the person next to you. You're singing to the Lord. And you're singing out of a grateful heart. So if if you're a Christian and you're grateful, then you I, I'll, I'll say you ought to sing. Now I'm not saying you ought to sing solos. Not everybody that goes back to what Matt was saying. Some people are more fit for solos, and the Lord has graciously gifted myself in that way, but he just as easily might not have. And I still would sing. My father sings, even though he can't carry a tune in a bucket. <laughs> that is bad, Catherine. So what? So, so what were the disciples singing about? And Jesus, they were singing about God's great salvation. Now, the location of where they were was the temple. I'm sorry, the Mount of Olives. They were on the way to the Mount of Olives. Now, I know that that's kind of small. I intended to bring a book that had a map in it. Um, it showed you where the Mount of Olives is, but it was really heavy and, and thick, and I just decided not to do that. And my pointer doesn't work on these TVs. It doesn't show up. But I will just show you briefly. That's an aerial view north to south of the old city of Jerusalem. It wouldn't be accurate today. For one reason, there's no wall. You can see the clear outline of the wall there. But Gethsemane is here. You see these lines? I don't know if you can see those little lines, but they indicate elevation. And uh, the, so the Mount of Olives is right here, mm -hmm. right here. And so I, I was going to play a little game where you try to locate them, but I think that's going to be too small for y'all. So we'll, we won't worry about that. But I did want to show you some pictures. Anybody got any questions about that? I want to show you some pictures of what a Mount of Olives looks like today. That is... A view of the Mount from the uh, that is a view of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Now, of course, it looks a lot different now than it would then. First is all the modernization, but what really stands out that would not have been? I'm sorry, uh, I was mistaken. That's the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. I got mixed up. Oh yeah, yeah. It's 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 very modern and built up. In my mind, I still think of it as olive trees and groves. It was. 
they didn't have, they might have had little shelters for people to get out of the rain and stuff like that, but that's what it looks like um, today. And the next slide is, you see something that really stands out there that would not have been there back then. What is that? It's the mosque, right. Islam had not even been invented yet. Um, Muhammad lived, what, in the 6th century? 500 AD, something like that? So, uh, that's Jerusalem? Yeah, that's Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And of course, the skyscrapers wouldn't have been there. But you see this right here? That's the old wall. That's the old wall. I don't know if that's the western wall. The, west, the, the western wall, the wailing wall, is what you particularly have in mind. But I don't know if that's it. Do you think that's it, Ms. Janice? I don't know. That's what I think in my mind. But uh, that's a view of that. Um, what we got there? Oh, let me get let me go back one. Yes, ma'am. Is that right? One thing that you I don't know if you can see it. Oh, okay. Here's another a little closer view. You see these things down here? What do you think those things are? They look like connexes, don't they? They look like big containers. They look like cargo containers. They are well, they are of a sort. They are tombs, tombs where people are buried today. Yes. It's like a mausoleum. It's like a mausoleum. Thousands of them. Um, I'll give you a, a closer view of it. There's a closer view of the tombs there. And then some other things that you can see on the Mount of Olives today. The Russian Orthodox churches and, and things like that. So, let's talk about Jesus' love. Let's, let's get more into the applicational aspects of, of what we need to do. The first thing we want to do is accept the undeniable. One of the things that is obviously true from this passage when you look at it is that Jesus knew his disciples' weaknesses, right? Jesus knew his disciples' weaknesses. He predicts, first of all, a general um, abandonment. He says, you will all fall away. Now this comes, this would have hit them especially hard because right before this, in verses 17 through 21, he says sort of cryptically, one of you will what? Will betray me. Now that's specific in what will happen, but it's General, it's not specific in who's going to do it. So they all start asking, is it me? Is it me? And so then on the way, and they still haven't made the connection to Judas, right? <laughs> That's, that won't hit them for a lot, until a lot later. Um, he says, you're all going. Now, he doesn't use the word betray me. But the word betray in the Greek here is Scandalizo, and you can almost hear the word scandal in it. And it is interpreted, uh, it is, uh, what's the word, translated, um, offended, fall away, in other places. Remember the place where Jesus says, uh, if, you, if your eye offends you, rip it, rip it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Well, those are, those are serious matters. Those are matters of life and death, spiritually. Spiritual life and death, eternal life and death. And the word offend there is the same word, scandalizo, or that, the verb form. So they do betray him. They didn't betray him for money, but they betrayed him. Well, let, let's talk about, we'll talk in a second 
about that. The theme of abandonment dominates uh, this chapter. Jesus was abandoned by denial. He was abandoned by indifference in the Garden of Gethsemane. And next week when we looked at the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, watch and pray. And they immediately do what? They fall asleep. He's, ab he's abandoned by uh, betrayal, Judas himself. He's abandoned by fleeing in a few minutes exactly what, what he predicts is, is going to happen. And he says, interestingly, look at verse 27 in your scripture. He says, you will all fall away for it is written. That means it's in the Old Testament, what you're about to read. And the part, now I want you to do this. Turn in your scripture to Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7. Now if you're like me, and I will admit this, you don't spend a lot of time in the book of Zechariah. One of the reasons is it's very difficult to understand. It's almost um, as difficult as the book of Revelation, maybe more so in some places. Chapter 13, there's 14 chapters, so it's near the end. Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7. Somebody read that. I don't, and, and let me know what translation you're in. Does anybody's translation say anything different? Mine does. What's it say? Go ahead. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand. It's not much different. Okay. What I want to draw your attention to is that last part of that verse. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. That's what Jesus is quoting here, is it not? He says in verse 27 of our text, I will. Now, there is a slight difference there, isn't it? Strike the shepherd. Because he's striking himself because he is the trinity. He's referring to himself. We need to be careful in how we phrase that because Jesus is distinct from God the Father. So I would say God the Father is striking the Son. Right. Remember our Trinitarian differences. God is one person. I'm sorry, God is one essence in three persons. Jesus is one person with two natures. A human nature and a divine nature. So we need to, but you're right. He, he, he changes the imperative, the command, strike the shepherd into I will, a future tense. I will strike the shepherd. And I don't know if there's a lot of significance in that. But he's, he's attributing this to God. It is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, this is, the, the word scattered is really important. And I'll tell you why. Scattered, um, I already talked about this theme of, uh, of abandonment. Scattered helps us understand the falling away. What, kind, what is the nature of their falling away? How should it be characterized? Is it betrayal like Judas's? It was definitely fearful. Judas was calculated, right? Mm -hmm. He didn't fall in a moment of weakness. Mm -hmm. He sought out the opportunity, the scripture tells us. He planned, he planned it and then he executed his little mission. 
But Jesus says, because they don't know yet that uh, the guards are around the corner. I mean, it won't be long, maybe an hour, maybe two, before they come for him. The disciples are completely unaware. But Jesus knows, and he says, you will all fall away, for it is written. So there's that word, fall away, which scares them to death. Are we all going to betray him? But then he says, not that they understood it, but it should have given them a little comfort. I will strike the shepherd. Who's the shepherd here? He is. He's a, he said, I'm about to be struck. And the sheep will be scattered. In other words, uh, one commentator named Edwards wrote, it is a lapse rather than an egregious rebellion. Now, I can't help but to think also that one of the reasons why Jesus knows that they're going to scatter is because he knows that they still aren't 100% faithful. So they're indecisive. So when something does happen to Jesus, they're all going to have different opinions and different ideas of what they should do, and they're all going to scatter. In spite of what they're about to say. In spite of right? right. <laughs> Let's look, look at this quotation. Jesus warns the disciples to guard against the kind of sinfulness. By the way, when it says he warns, um, if you look back at chapter 13, he says several times, um, verse 9, be on your guard. Um, he says down in verse 35, stay awake for you don't know. He's, he's priming the pump. He's saying... Bad stuff's about to happen, and you need to be on your guard. And it, so the quotation says, he warns the disciples to guard against the kind of sinfulness of which most of us are guilty most of the time. That is, sins of weakness and irresoluteness rather than sins of intention. Now, do we ever sin intentionally? We do. We do sin intentionally sometimes. But, thank goodness, most of the time when you sin, wouldn't you say it's probably a sin of weakness? A sin of just, well, that last quote's the money quote. We don't plan on sinning, but neither do we hold the fort when we ought to. And that's why a couple of weeks ago I preached an entire message about how to... <laughs> You know, the reason, the reason, you know, do you want to be stronger, more mature, more like Christ on December 31st, 2021 than you were on January 1st, 2021? And it ain't going to happen by accident. You have to be resolute. You have to be intentional. See, that's the thing about growth in the right direction. You have to intend to do it. Do you have to intend to fail? No. Just wake up and live, and you will fail. <laughs> um, but there is this last uh, there is this last part I want to put up here, and that is this idea of Jesus, the Shepherd King. What, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but when you go back and look at Zechariah 13, this idea that I will strike the Shepherd is equating the Shepherd there with the Messiah. And if you think about it, who was the first shepherd king? David was. Well, what is another title for Messiah? It has to do with David. 
I did not think this was going to be a hard one. From the blind faith. The son of David. How many times do we see blind people or land say, Son of David, have mercy on me. And David, his, <laughs> his nature, his, his identity as a shepherd had been mostly relegated to a footnote of Hebrew history. But Jesus came the first time as a shepherd. He would come as the warrior king later. And that's what David became. But he's a true son of David. The shepherd king struck down by God so that he might be raised up again. You know, we need to accept the undeniable. You're just as weak as Peter. Just as weak as you know, Matthew and the rest of them. Now, I don't think Jesus... I don't think that Jesus is going to make a prophecy over you. You will fall away. But it's a lot better to just accept the truth. You know, I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Accepting the truth, even if it is horrible, is a lot better than living a lie. And we would all be better off if we just accepted the truth. Whatever that truth looks like. Think about transgender people just as the most obvious example. Would their life not be better off if they just accepted the truth about themselves instead of living in a fantasy world? What about the truth? You know, what about the idea that we're a Christian nation? Is that still true, or is it, are we living in a fantasy world if we talk about that? I, I'll give you my perspective. I think we're living in a fantasy world when we talk about that. We might be a more Christian nation than Iran or China. I think we are. But in the sense that our grandparents used that phrase, it's no longer true. And so once you accept that, you then begin to view the world differently and accept things differently. Uh, on, a, on a more personal note, if you, you know, if you have a boy or you, let's say you have a son and let's say you were super athletic and in your mind, your son is going to be super athletic too. And what if he's not? Are you going to force him to go to all the practices and embarrass himself and come home crying every day? Or accept reality. Maybe he can play a trombone. I don't know. We're just throwing stuff out there. What is, you know, what about you is true that you haven't accepted? What about your spouse is true that you haven't accepted? Um, <laughs> I'll use a, a quick example uh, from my own life. N Natalie won't mind this. This was a long time ago. Before, I know. Now she's paying attention. She didn't hear anything that came for this. So either before we got married or in the early days of our marriage, she knew I loved football. And uh, it was it grated on her nerves that I would watch football on Saturdays and Sundays. And back then, I don't know if, I don't think Sunday night football was a thing at the time. But anyway, it bothered her. Won't get into all the reasons why. Anyway, I did end up, especially after the kids came, you, you just have to cut certain things back. You just have to. But even before that, I would cut a little bit out, but I, I was insistent. If the Cowboys were on, I'm going to watch them play. 
And I don't remember the exact words, but we had a conversation once where I said, look, this is who I am. Accept it. Don't accept it. This is me. I'm going to watch football. And uh, I guess she accepted it because we're still married and things are going okay. But the, the reality, what I'm saying is, think about it from a sin perspective. What's true about you from a sin perspective that you need to accept? Maybe you have a weakness or weaknesses in areas that you've been denying and, and not being honest with yourself about for a long time. Maybe your children have weaknesses that you haven't been honest with yourself about for a long time. We are undeniably weak. The good news is Jesus already knows this and has made, he has made possible um, our ultimate salvation. So the second thing we need to do is prepare for the inevitable. So the 12, led by Peter, all emphatically disagreed with Jesus. He did give this little bit of hope. After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. But they didn't pay any attention to that. Peter said, and of course, he's always the one to talk first. And by the way, how would you have felt if you were one of the other 10 disciples here? Look at what he says. Even if all these other losers fall away, I am not. He didn't say losers, but that's basically what he's saying, right? How would you have thought? You'd be like, Peter, wait a minute. I'm standing right here. I can hear you. <laughs> Even if they all fall away, I will not. And then later, uh, in verse 31, my translation says, he said emphatically. I don't know what that means. He, was, he raised his voice. He was gestures. Nose, nostrils flaring. He, he said emphatically, and here he uses a double negative. I ain't never going to deny you. No, I will not. In fact, uh, some translations probably say, I will never deny you. Does anybody's translation say that? Yeah. I will never do it. Never so, never I will never disown. That's interesting. So once again, and we've seen this before, where Jesus says something that was undeniably true that they should have accepted. Peter refused to accept it. He's going to live in his own little alternate reality. The last time, it was when Jesus said, I am going to die, and, uh, and after three days I'll be raised again. And Peter draws him aside and says, this is never going to happen to you. And that's when he says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> so... When we disagree with Jesus or the truth, it never goes well with us. Um, the trials of life are inevitable. Is that right? You can no more dodge them than you can dodge a wave. I know when I was a, when I was a kid, when we'd go to the beach, you know how I play at the beach now? I watch my kids and make sure they don't drown. That's how I play at the beach. Going to the beach is, is not as fun as it used to be. But when I was younger going by myself or just with Natalie or somebody. Um, you know, one of the things I like to do was to ride the waves in with just my body. And every once in a while, if the waves are real choppy and, big, you know, there's big waves coming, you try to see if you could race the wave, not in, but like if here's the shoreline, here's the wave coming this way to see if you could outrun it. Sometimes you, you know, sometimes you beat the wave, but eventually the wave gets you. You are going to get hit. Well, that's the way the trials of life are. 
You can't avoid them. But you can, you must take one of two courses. One is rely on yourself in false strength. And I put a little mark to it because you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> Peter says, I don't know about the others, uh, but I will never do it. Peter, it says here, one person wrote, thinks of himself as the exception to the rule. That is a dangerous place to put yourself. Everybody else, this might be true of them, but it's not true of me. All these CEOs that get caught, it'll never happen to me. Husbands or wives that step out in their spouses, oh, I know everybody else. I've seen other people get caught. I'll be, I'll be the one that doesn't get caught. Children lying to their parents. I'll be the one. We are, let me, I hate to break it to you. You are not special. <laughs> we, have, we have a whole generation of people that have been trained to think, oh, you're so special. And there is a sense in which you're special. I'm not denying that. You're made in God's image and you have a, your own unique personality. But there are sen there is a, there are senses in which you are not unique. Like, for example, we're all going to die, right? We're not going to get away from that. And none of us are the exception to the rule that we must either live in reality or face the consequences of not living in reality. I heard a, a Bible teacher give the illustration once that I can pretend that that wall is not there. But if I back up over here and run full sprint at that wall, it's going to knock me over. Why? Because the wall is there, whether I believe it's there or not. So we can either rely on ourselves and false strength to get through our problems, to get through um, our sin issues, or we can rely on Christ in weakness. Recognize your own weakness. Accept what is undeniably true. Don't do what the disciples did. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. You know, I don't like to be, I, I don't want anybody to think I'm stupid. But there is a whole segment of the church right now that is, when I say the church, I mean the church in America, the church at large, even in the Southern Baptist Convention, that is bowing to the pressure to seem wise. Um, I'll give you the best example I can think of. The one that immediately comes to mind. You know why most people believe in evolution? Most Christians that do believe in evolution, do you know why they do? I it's, think I'd like to be a Christian and believe in evolution. Well, yeah, I mean, they would... I mean th those that claim that God used it, okay? And, and so it's not because the biblical evidence is overwhelming. It's not even really because the scientific evidence is overwhelming. It's because the scientific consensus is overwhelming. We were having this conversation before church. I'm going to follow the evidence wherever it leads. At least I hope so. 
because I want to know what's true, not what narrative is being spun. This is why I don't watch the news anymore. I don't trust it. 2 Corinthians 12.10 says, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, so and so forth. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We have to be willing to be viewed as weak. To be viewed as foolish. The world thinks we are fools already. Because we believe a dead man's going to save us. And then, at least in their view, we know he's really alive. So how... How can we follow or rely on Christ in weakness? First of all, recognize your weakness. Secondly, watch and pray, which is what he said, or he's going to say. Look at verse 38. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. So the last thing, the last uh, main point is we, we want to adore the merciful. The word adore uh, does not just mean, you know, we usually use the word with adorable which we usually reserve for puppies and kittens and babies. But um, the word adore just means to worship. It means to, to see the awesomeness in something and appreciate it. Jesus said, after I am raised up, verse 28, I will go before you to Galilee. Now this was literally fulfilled. Look at look over at Mark 16, the last chapter. When Jesus after Jesus is raised from the dead, the women who go to the tomb see an angel and the angel says, "Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is doing what? He's going before you to Galilee." I love that line too. Tell his disciples and Peter. Verse 31 says they all said the same thing. They were following Peter's lead. But everybody that was there knew that Peter was the one that put his neck out. <laughs> As always. The angel's words affirm Peter. Not just as a man but as a disciple still, even after his denial. He was not a former disciple. He was still one. Incidentally, um, this has nothing to do with the passage really, but I think this destroys the idea that somebody can lose their salvation. <laughs> you ever thought about it? People that say you can lose your salvation say There's, there are sins you can commit that will take you out of fellowship with God. Well, if Peter's didn't, I don't know which ones would. And yet, Peter, after denying Christ three times, is still counted as one of the disciples. I think that's very affirming to you and me. Because there are time, going to be times when we fall away, right? Not intentional. Not because we set out to sin, but just in a moment of weakness. Jesus, knowing not only their weakness, but their future failure, still loved them. And he held out hope for them. After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. You know, how you deal... Let me see where I am. How you deal 
with failure, I think is about as important as you're preparing not to fail. What if you did everything that you thought was right? You read your Bible every day. You prayed every day. You confessed your sins every day. You came to church when the doors were open. You witnessed to people. You had all the boxes checked. Are you still going to fall away sometimes? Yes. Why? Because what is undeniably true? You are still a sinner. So, how you deal with failure, and I'm speaking specifically here about failure in sin, because that's the failure that they are about to uh, embrace. Um, embrace isn't the right word, but that's what they're about to experience. Failure of a very specific kind, abandoning the Lord in his greatest hour of need. I imagine, you know, when Paul writes in his epistles about his former life, you can, you can tell that he's still ashamed of it. He still regrets the things that he did to the church. I imagine Peter and the disciples, even many years later, still regret their decision that night, which we'll look at in two weeks, starting in verse 43. But after you fail, don't be despondent. Hope is a powerful weapon against despondency, against depression, against failure. You know, this is one reason that I reject drug, uh, medicine, medication, drugs as the primary means of dealing with anxiety and depression. I reject it. I'm not saying that they're not a useful bridge to get someone from uh, where they are to a healthy lifestyle. But there is no drug that can give you hope. And if it does, as soon as you stop taking it, what happens? Hope comes from within. Hope comes from God. And after failure, especially of a spiritual kind, hope is all you have. Hope that God will still accept you. Hope that God will still affirm you. Hope that God will still save you. And you know what we learn here? We learn that Jesus, knowing what they were about to do, still gave them hope. Why? Because he already knew their weakness. He knew what was undeniably true about them already, even though they did not know it themselves. And he's wonderfully gracious to us. He knows our weakness, our failures, and he loves us anyway. So, I forgot to put God's grace up there. <laughs> That's verses 26 through 31. Anybody have any, you know, think back to the whole of what we looked, of what we talked about. Any questions, any observations that, that you have before we dismiss for the evening? So, um, verse 31 in Mark 4 changes. You'll say after it says, um, after Peter says, if I have to die with you, it does. It says, he said emphatically, if I, if I'm, if, even if I must die with you. Of course, he wouldn't even make it through the night. What Mark, uh, let's see. You know, I didn't even talk about it. 
in verse 30. Probably, the, re the reason I didn't talk about verse 30 is because we're going to get to uh, look at that in some more detail um, when Peter denies Christ in verses 66 and following. But Jesus even gave Jesus, uh, Peter a very specific um, prediction. Tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. Now, there are, there are different um, interpretations or understandings of when the rooster crows twice. Some people think it's something very specific. There was a Roman bugle call called the rooster, uh, called the cock crow, uh, which was right before dawn, but I don't think that's uh, what he's talking about because when you go down in Mark, later in Mark, it says the rooster crowed. <laughs> so um, I think Mark could have been more specific if he wanted to. Probably just before daylight. It's still dark when the rooster crows twice, probably. And uh, Peter denies him. And that's why, he get, that's why he was so emphatic. By the way, when, when, you're <clears throat> when someone confronts you with knowledge that is true, and you know it's true, but you don't want to admit it, the worst thing you can do is dig in your heels. It's the worst thing you can do. That's what Peter did here. He actually got more animated, didn't he? Verse 29, he says, even if they all fall away, I'm not going to. Then Jesus says, no, Peter, you're all going to fall away, and I've got a special message for you individually. <laughs> you're going to be the worst of them all. <laughs> and then Peter, kind of like, like the tennis players responding with volleys, he hits one back at Jesus. If I've got to die, I'm going to die tonight. And, of course, uh, we know how that ended. Anything else? Okay. Appreciate y'all coming. Uh, Brother Wren, you close in prayer, please.